Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Good morning, Doug. Good to Good see morning. you. Good to see you too, JR. Always great to be with you. And the only thing that would make today better are some Babylon B headlines. I feel like we need to have some kind of like musical entrance for Babylon B headlines. <laughs> man. Oh, man. And it's fun when we have people send them to us and sometimes we make them up. So I'm curious. You got one. I got one. And then I'll, we'll roll it. We're I'll go in. first. I'll go first. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. Clever. This Christian is a bad driver. So he put atheist bumper stickers all over his car. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Mine, nice and simple. Don't know why it struck me so funny today. Man chooses self as accountability partner. <laughs> oh my gosh. Erica. There we go. There we go. That that's so a good, good that's a good choice. That is a good choice. Even in a pandemic, it's good to laugh. Even in the midst of division, it's good to laugh. Yes. And, uh, that's really important. So yeah, Doug, tell us who we have on the podcast today. Yeah. So we're actually, uh, there's a very few people that we've had on twice. And so we are rebooting, uh, Steve Cuss. In fact, we're not rebooting him. We invited him back on the show. Yeah. Uh, we just feel like with the pandemic and all the stuff. And, and for those of you that, that are, this is your first time listening and hearing Steve's name, Steve wrote a book a, a few years ago called managing leadership anxiety. Um, for those of you that have read it, pull it out, dust it off. This, it is such an important work for the time that we find ourselves in. Uh, if you haven't read it, we're just so excited that you have a chance to to hear Steve uh, and his beautiful Australian accent, uh, but also that we have an opportunity to just think through some things that are super prevalent and helpful for us right now as we continue to lead uh, in these really changing times. Yeah. And as the anxiety has been jacked up the last several months, we thought it would be great to have him back on to talk about uh, managing leadership anxiety and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. So enjoy this conversation with, with our friend, Steve Cuss. Steve, it's great to have you back on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Yeah, I love you guys. Thanks for having me back. It's it's a lot of fun. Well, there aren't too many guests that we've had back, and so you're on the very short list. But when we talk about lists, we also say the life-giving list has been something we've mentioned a great deal on this. So that's been a gift to many pastors. And so Doug and I are eager to hear where it might go today and what, what's been going on. But since we last talked, we've had this, oh, I don't know, little thing called a pandemic. And I'm curious, I know Doug is curious too, um, we're sort of asking everybody, you know, how are you doing? But that's sort of a lame question. Um, what do you, how are you feeling now compared to how you thought you might feel in the midst of a pandemic and trying to pastor through it? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. Um, on, you know, on the one hand, I don't know a single pastor that would say they're doing really well. Um, and I don't, so I don't think I'm doing really well, but I do think for me, like, what are we now? Seven months in? The, the May-June season was, was I would just say it was brutal for me. And I think what made it brutal was just the complete feeling of disconnection from individuals in my congregation. I, I think that's that was where I really realized just how much of my pastoring is just casual, just bumping into people every day, whether it's staff, volunteers, everyday members of the church, and all of that being taken away and just not being able to replicate it. And then I, I, I'm down right now in my uh, basement. Um, so I set up a little man cave down here for the podcast and for me to do work. 
And I think I didn't realize until it was too late that this this is where you go if you want to experience depression. You just go hang out in a basement. <laughs> and I I am naturally very optimistic and cheerful just as, as a natural disposition. It's funny, you know, I'm known as the anxiety guy, but I'm, I'm naturally pretty cheerful. I, I went into quite a depression. I remember a couple of days waking up paranoid. Uh, this was like new for me, like not just having an inherent mistrust of people who love me was weird. And so I realized environmentally I, I was actually in trouble. Um, so my wife and I just spent a couple hundred bucks and we put up some shade sails in our backyard and I, I try to work outdoors as much as I can. And, um, that's been crazy, but, but that was a while ago. I, I, you know, I think what I have going for me is it's not that I'm not anxious or that I'm like the more healthy than other people, just cause I write about it. I just think I'm less tolerant of being unhealthy than most people. And so I intervene quicker. I think that's the only, you know, I've been doing this anxiety stuff like 20 years. I think that's the only benefit I have is I'm faster at getting help and realizing when I'm stuck. So I'd say the last couple of months, I've been feeling pretty good. I think I'm good at uh, looking for the gifts of COVID. And there are actually quite a few gifts, including today, like we're recording late because our whole city's internet just broke. So... So I was frustrated for about an hour this morning, and then I just realized, oh, this is a gift. I'm going to take my kids to coffee. and uh, So we have not had a productive day. Let's just say that I've got a big inbox <laughs> waiting for me. <laughs> so, uh, it, and thanks for your vulnerability on that. How, you said you're, you feel like in the pandemic, you're, you become less tolerant of when you go to, un how do you know where your line is? Because we all have a different line when we tip from healthy to unhealthy. How how have you sensed where your line is when you go from healthy to unhealthy as a pastor? If I'm if I'm feeling depressed for more than a few hours, I'm going to work on some kind of intervention or ask someone for help. Um, and then it's the same with my anxiety. Like as you guys know, anxiety isn't in, in the field that I work in. It's not worry and fear. It's it's what shows up when you don't get what you need, what you think you need. So if I need control or, or a lot, what I'm running into with pastors is um, we all need productivity. We believe we should be as productive as we used to be. Man, I am just not nearly as productive as I was in March. And so I think I notice when I start to spin um, and I'm, I'm only willing to spin for a few hours and then I'm, I'm working hard on my interventions. And sometimes it still takes a few days. I think, May and June for me were all daily battles. Um, but I don't know. I, I guess I don't know that I'm being very helpful here with the answer. I just don't think I tolerate it. I think that's what I would say is just I'd say to, to leaders, just don't tolerate it. Like, like theologically and historically, if you think of chronic anxiety as an oppressive force, all through history, the oppressor never hands power to the oppressed. You always have to fight for it. So Gandhi had to fight. Martin Luther King had to fight. Moses with Pharaoh had to fight. And I think one of the mistakes in Christianity is because Jesus died for us and we are free indeed, we don't realize we still have to fight. We think that that's some kind of a works righteousness. I, I still have to fight for the freedom that is mine in Christ. And I, that would be just my word to people is it's totally worth the fight. Mm. And and even if your tools aren't working, like sometimes you'll you'll work your tools and it's not getting anywhere. Good, then then dig deeper, 
take more time. Um, and I think that's what I'm probably good at is so like August for me was more like acceptance month. Mm. And so now I'm this like unproductive hippie. <laughs> I'm, I'm just not, <laughs> I'm just not getting as much done as I used to, but, um, I'm more present to people and boy, I'm enjoying my kids more. That's for sure. So mm. Mm. That's really helpful, Steve. And the one thing that you said that I, I I'd love for you to tease out, if if you if you can, um, you mentioned the word intervention. What what does an intervention look like for you? I mean, I you know some people might have this picture mm-hmm. of all these people coming in and you know holding you down, but uh, my, my guess is it's probably a lot simpler. And so, could you speak to that? Yeah, I've done some of those interventions that you're <laughs> describing. That they're, they're an adventure. Uh, in fact, I'm even now as you're talking, thinking about the last one where uh, the lady was throwing throwing things. Uh, mm. We all came into a house and she just started picking up vases and throwing them at us. It was very, it's why you're in ministry stories like that. <laughs> um, you know, you, you bring up a good point though. Like, like a lot of, it is interesting how few leaders actually know when they're anxious. And so you can actually ask people who love you, including your leaders who are listening, who have their own children. If, if your kids are older than about the age of eight and they don't feel intimidated by you, they can tell you when you're anxious before you know you're anxious. So I do mm. think asking loved ones, friends and family. Um, and then, you know, the last time I was on the show, we just talked about the physiological signs, your spinning mind, racing heart, tightening gut. Once you know that about yourself, it's hard to stay in its grip. So it used to be before I did this work, I would my mind would spin for days, and now I make it spin for hours. Mm. Um, so I think that's how you intervene. And then, the, you know, we kicked around the life giving list. Sometimes you really can pray your way through, and sometimes you have to displace it with activity. Um, and so, for example, like if if I'm asking my wife for like a long hug. After the first 20 seconds or so where it just you, – you really do physiologically start to relax and just settle into that hug and it's difficult to stay anxious. If you are being physically wrapped by someone that loves you, um, it just – it really does displace anxiety. So that's why I'm a big fan of the life-giving list because it's such a tangible way to worship God uh, while displacing anxiety, I guess. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about productivity and not being as productive, we're so wired as pastors to produce, right? In fact, in many ways, we're paid for it to produce yeah. spiritual experiences yeah. or goods or expectations met. So if we're less productive, and I'm so, I, I hear contentment and maturity in your voice and, and freedom that you're finding in that. I, I, I know, I've coached two leaders today that when I said, so who are you? They just went through a list of their achievements. Yeah. And I said, that's not what I asked. I said, who are you? So I'm curious as some of those for pastors are being stripped away. Some of those like, you know, David Brooks talks about um, resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. Yeah. And so what lies are you tempted to believe in this season when it comes to being less productive? Yeah, I mean, so I'm a lead pastor of a church that has, I think right now we have like 30 staff. Most of them are part-time and actually most of them are college interns right now. But one of the lies I'm tempted to believe is I am responsible to keep them employed. Mm. And I'm not. Um, It's quite likely that we will have to, that I'll have to take a pay cut. I think 
I'm expecting that our church income will continue to decline. We did great until about a month ago, and then suddenly our church income is starting to dry up. We don't know why, and we don't know how long it's going to last. It might be a blip, and it might be a new reality. And I have the incredible gift of having an executive pastor. His name's Tom. He's amazing. And he and I talk openly like we want to do everything we can for our team. But at the end of the day, we're all, all of us are doing the best we can. We love our team. We're all doing the best we can to follow God in an ambiguous situation. I think one of the, one of the most helpful things I've done is develop a list of environments that will guarantee anxiety in a leader. And one of them is ambiguity. If you're in an ambiguous situation, you will be anxious. There's no, I don't care who you are. You're going to be anxious. And all of us are leading into ambiguity. So I think that does give you the gift of figuring out what do I really think is on me that's actually not on me. And at the end of the day, it's on God who will provide and we will do our best with what God provides. And we're the kind of leaders that we will take the biggest sacrifice. Like I'll take a bigger pay cut than anyone else, of course. But it's actually not on my shoulders to make sure everyone's getting, you know, paid, for example. Um, it's also, I, I noticed the other day, <laughs> I, we had a 24-hour prayer vigil at our church. We just had 50 people at a time come in for an hour and a half, and we prayed 24 hours. It was, it was amazing. And so I'm walking out of this really neat and needed prayer time, and there's this gentleman on the front porch uh, from our church, a good man. And he is one of, I don't know, 80 that has pulled me aside and said, Steve, I just want to talk to you about opening up the building and masks. And, you know, he's he's like, I want to get one of those number systems like the deli. Like, take a number, dude. Like, <laughs> do you really think that what I need is more insight, you know? Um, and so I kind of made a vow to God, like the next people, even these good, decent people who want to give me their opinion on how we should open and whether we should wear masks and state capacities that I'm just not going to respond. I'm just going to look kindly. I'm not going to be angry. And so he's talking and he just kept saying, I don't think you understand how much we all miss meeting. And I just kept looking at him <laughs> uh, because I wanted to explain. I wanted to say, well, you know, I mean, our staff spent probably 500 hours trying to figure this out. And so I just kept looking kindly and I didn't speak. And he finally, we're in this kind of awkward staring contest. And he finally just said, Oh, well, maybe you do understand. And and I just not, I'm like, yeah, I, we understand. It's hard for us to, like, it's not like we get to use this building. Um, so I feel like I've lost your question in that. Um, no, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. And that's, that's important. I think we're all wrestling with those questions and how do we respond with grace and patience and yet also like some sort of prophetic side too. And so how do we measure the pastor the pastoral and the prophetic in questions that we're getting 50,000 times. And, you know, you just want, sometimes I you just want to respond in sarcasm on occasion. It's just like, Oh, you know, I've never considered that in six right. months. That thought has never come across my mind. It's like, dude, and I don't know. I, I don't know what those temptations you might feel. And same with you, Doug. I'm curious, like, you know, what is it, what is it like when, when you're getting it for the 50th time, in the last six days. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's what it was like. It was when you're asking, you know, what, what do I think I need? And it's like, I don't owe people insight that, that mm. I've died to that. It's okay to be misunderstood and to listen. And yeah, I, and I don't owe them like unending patience. 
Um, I, I, I owe them patience, but I don't owe them unending patience. So. <laughs> that's really, that's helpful. Just keep going. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I keep kind of landing this sentence and picking up again, but he, he's a good man, but he probably won't ask me again. Like I, I sent a clear message like, Hey, come on, give, give us a break. You know? Cause so I think that's the other thing for listeners is like, if you're a pastor, I think we can so easily forget that we're still exactly human sized. Mm. It's okay to be human in this season. Mm. And that doesn't mean mean, like you said, Jay, I don't, it doesn't mean sarcastic, but you don't have to be superhuman. Yeah. Yeah. There are times where uh, there's a pastor that I talked with recently. I said, how do you, what do you do when you're, when you're asked that, you know, for the thousandth time? And he said, I just look at them and as patiently and as pastorally I can, I smile and say, do you trust me? And if they say, oh yeah, they say, then he just says, thank you. And then he walks away. And if they say, well, I don't know, say he just smiles then and walks away. <laughs> yeah. so not in a rude way, not in a, what do you do? Don't trust me. It's just, yeah. uh, I, I found that to be a pretty pastoral, but prophetic response. Do you trust me? Yeah. I think I mm-hmm. would add to that. Uh, are you okay if we get it wrong? Like, wow, that's good. We're, we're not going to get it right. We're, we're going to make so many mistakes, but we have good people working really hard trying to figure it out. I think because mm. even that when I hear they do you trust me, especially with our current era we're in, with so many church leaders and public leaders have these deep wow. dark secrets. Mm. I don't mind that people are suspicious, mm. and I find the way to de-escalate their suspicion is to just invite them to consider that I'm going to make I'm going to get it wrong. Mm. Um, mm. And, and so God. If God wants someone smarter than me, it's God's fault that I'm here. Take it up with God. It's kind of like that. So, Steve, uh, before we got on the show, you mentioned something about the word verbatim, and you piqued Jr. and I's interest, and we'd love to hear you talk about what what that's all what that's all about, and yeah, what what is it? What is verbatim? Yeah, um, a verbatim is a tool I was exposed to when I was a trauma chaplain, and it's changed my life. and And we use it at our church, and anyone can do one. Basically, it's an essay that you write up that not only tracks a leadership encounter you had, but it also tracks as best as you can remember what you were thinking and feeling during the time. And then you also have to reflect now that you're looking back on it, what do you think and feel now? So it's basically an essay that you write up to help you become more aware of how you're showing up in the moment and then to help you uh, reflect back so you can show up differently next time. So it's not a mulligan. It's not like a do-over. And then you, the power of a verbatim is you present it to a group of trusted people. So in our church, what we teach a class, we put everyone into groups of five with a facilitator, and all five of them take a week each to present a verbatim. So they'll print out their little essays. It's anywhere between three and seven pages. And then everyone has their essay on their lap. And then the person who wrote the verbatim, reads it like a play. They just read, I said this, he said that, she said that. And then they read what they were thinking and feeling. And then the group, even though they've never been trained in verbatims, they just ask reflective questions. Tell me more about this assumption or or something like that. So the the reason it's so powerful is when I was a chaplain, they refused to train us. The whole 
model of education is they plunge you into the deep end. And then every morning for an hour and a half, you de debrief. And the verbatim was one of the most powerful debrief tools. I, I, I did something like 60 verbatims the year I was a chaplain. Sometimes I do it with my whole group, sometimes just with one supervisor. But it's basically a self-reflection tool to help you understand how you show up when you're under pressure, feeling attacked, anxious, or when you don't know what to do. And uh, it, it's neat. I've, I've got a template I give people where there's also a theological reflection. Where was God in this encounter? Because oftentimes we, when we're anxious, we forget that God's with us. Um, you give a little kind of background to help us understand it. But yeah, people in our in our church leadership have found it super helpful. It's it's a great tool. So I write about it. I don't remember what chapter in my book. I want to say it's chapter nine in my book. I do a whole chapter on verbatims and I teach you how to write one and I give you a list of questions that you can ask each other. Uh, so any group of friends, like a group, a pastoral network, they could try it. If you've got a bunch of guys in your group, I hate to be like gender stereotype here, but guys tend to step in and try to fix or tell someone how they, and we're just trying to be helpful, uh, but we try to tell someone, here's how you could have done it. The verbatims aren't interested in how you could have done it. They're only interested in how did you show up so we can help you be aware of how you tend to show up. And then over time, you you become aware of how you show up and you can die to it and be more present to people. So that's just kind of a verbatim in a nutshell. Great tool in times like this because so much anxiety nowadays in church leadership, it's it's one of the best tools I offer on on how to uh, how to lead. And right now, I'm I'm doing virtual verbatim groups. It's been really fun. Normally, I do wow. them in the room, but I've got a group of pastors right now from all over the country. And watching these guys who have never done a verbatim, watching them help each other, having never been trained, that's that's some of my favorite stuff because we all see things about each other that you know that I don't see about myself. So that's the power of doing a verbatim in a group. So do the verbatim. And then at the end, when you say, how would you respond now? Do you write that out? Yeah. Do you process that aloud? How does that work? Yeah. So the first part of the verbatim is, is background just to kind of get us into the situation. Then the main guts of the verbatim is a table. Like if you have a word processor, you build a, a three column table. First column is if, if it's me, I'm M. And then the first thing I say is M1. And then if like JR, I change your name to Peter to keep it confidential, then it's P1. M2, P2, as you and I are talking. And then across from that, it's what each of us is saying word for word as best as we remember it. And across from that is what I was thinking and feeling at the time. Once the table's done, then there's a paragraph of, okay, well, now that you wrote it up, what do you think and feel right now? And then where, where was the gospel? Are there any gospel themes? And then the final thing is, what would you like to work on? What are some mm -hmm. themes that you'd like us to explore? When I teach verbatims, a lot of people say, I would never remember word for word, but it's actually not about objective fact. It's about the meaning you made. So you don't have to remember word for word. Also, most people would be blown away if you just sat quietly for 20 minutes and really thought about an encounter, you'll be blown away about how vividly you remember every part of it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So then, yeah, you print it out, you hand it to your group. I normally have a pen and I'm underlining stuff and writing questions as the person's reading it like a play. And then we spend about an hour and 15 minutes exploring themes with the person who presented. We call it the hot seat. One person's on the hot seat. And, uh, you know, we usually try to just figure out where they want to go and we try to honor as best as we can what they want to learn. So oftentimes you'll say, yeah, I'm noticing this theme. Is this something you want to explore? 
they'll say yes or no. Another really important thing is we'll say, look, you've just given us this like two-dimensional document. Obviously, you have a three-dimensional experience of it in your head. So we might make assumptions about it that are just wrong. So just let us know. I'm, I'm going to maybe ask a question because I'm exploring a theme. And you might say, well, I can see why you see it that way, but actually the person is not like that. Uh, that that's a verbatim. And it's, very, it's not interested in whoever else is in the verbatim. It's only interested in you and how you showed up and what you assume and how you see the world and how you see yourself, how you see God. It's really powerful. How have you seen that fruit uh, lived out or or being or born in people's lives? Maybe it's one of those pastors you're talking about or someone within your church. How has that process of verbatim helped them be more spiritually mature or grow in their discipleship with Jesus? You know, most people, they know there's something wrong or, well, you know, I, I really think it does come back to Genesis 3 where, where when we're caught, we hide and blame. So I think some of these proclivities we all have. I'll, I'll give an example. One of my great leaders came to me last year and he said, uh, hey, maybe you're not aware that you do this, but when you're teaching us some new concept and we're having trouble getting our mind around it, you know, because you've known it for years and you're excited and you're teaching it too fast. And so we'll ask a couple of questions and you're great, you're patient, but then we'll ask more questions where we're confused. You get kind of combative and mm. then you make like an overstatement and shut us down. Mm. Now, the first time he noticed I did this, we were on a mission trip together in Kenya and I doubled down against the Kenyan pastors. And so I didn't know I did that. That was a blind spot. I, I, didn't, I was not aware that this was a trait of mine. He had to tell me again. I, I did it again. And he's like, hey, that, you did it again. The third time I caught myself doing it, but I wasn't able to stop it in the moment. I noticed it on debrief. The fourth time I stopped it before it happened. All of that kind of understanding. I've always known there's something in me, but I couldn't name it. And a verbatim gives you permission to be imperfect and to safely explore these tendencies we all have to push on each other or to lose trust or break community. And then they give you all this language to repair. So, for example, the third time it happened, I just I did it in a staff meeting. I went home. I'm like, I did it again. Mm. But before anyone had to call me, I'd already emailed the team. Here's what I did. Actually, one of you has been really kind to help me see this. Just like I teach you guys, I'm early in noticing it, so I'm getting it wrong. I just want to name what happened. I'm really sorry. I'm working on it. And I would really appreciate if you see me doing it, if you'd let me know, that would be helpful to me. All of that kind of transformation comes out of a verbatim. I think that's so helpful, Steve, because what I don't hear you saying is that you'll fix it to the point where it'll never happen again. But what I hear you saying is that you will, you will, you will see the triggers that are, that are coming up in the midst of the conversation and be able to hijack that process before it, before it runs somebody over. Is that right? Yeah. It's, it's, I, I think it's, it's not about being perfect and it's not, I, I've had some misunderstanding. I had a, a friend of mine, he, he read my book and we've known each other for years. He's like, Hey, uh, do you guys like just always sit around and talk about your feelings all the time? I'm like, no, <laughs> that sounds terrible. Like, why would we do that? <laughs> it's, it's more that we give each other room for imperfection so that there's not this unspoken angst. 
I just watched one of my key staff members do it last week. I, I, I was in a room and I just watched him walk over to someone and say, hey, it wasn't you that I was angry at, but you witnessed me angry to another staff member. And, and I've already done repair with them, but I just wanted to check with you because that's not okay. And I know I'm aware of it and I'm working on it. And when you, it takes 20 seconds. And when you do that, your people are all now willing to openly name the things we've always been a bit ashamed of. But it's not like a Dr. Phil where we're all sitting around and analyzing. It's it's quick. And and what I told my friend is I'm like, no, no, we're, we're more efficient because what your team does is they all have meetings about each other. And you mm-hmm. go to all those meetings and you're, you're all anxious because you're not sure what to do. We just get it all out in the open. Mm-hmm. So I know you are you are known for good or for ill as the anxiety guy. Yeah. So I don't want to spend a ton of time on managing leadership anxiety, but it is a fantastic book. And you've been teaching in this for a long time with 10 years, at least within your local church. I'm curious with the pandemic, if the publisher came back to you today and said, I want you to do, we want you to do an updated edition. Is there anything that you would change based on the pandemic and the anxiety that's sort of intensified? Or would you say, nope, exactly what I wrote. It applies now more than even when I wrote it. Yeah. I'm, I think I just have a natural suspicion of like pandemic opportunists. Mm. So I don't think I would change anything. I, I don't think the p- pandemic would make me change anything. I think just because I'm a rookie author who'd never written before, I would change. <laughs> I would, I, I would love an opportunity to rewrite. And now mm. that I've taught the book a lot in seminars and stuff, I feel like I would write a better book. Mm. Um, Mm. That's probably, I think I feel the same way about most sermons. So I think, but no, I I think, I think it is helpful for people to know that ambiguity is a guaranteed source of anxiety and related to that. Anytime a leader doesn't know what to do, Mm. um, that's a guaranteed source of anxiety. And then uh, double binds. So if, if your congregation has any kind of political diversity, you're in a tense situation between the anti-masks maskers and the Black Lives Matter people, and they don't like each other. I, I've been profoundly disappointed at some people in my congregation who I just think, man, what are they doing? Like, mm-hmm. in fact, we have now generated two sermon series just based on me watching the Facebook feeds of people in my congregation. I've had enough because they're yeah. more disciple by their political affiliation than by the gospel, and I didn't mm-hmm. think they were. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think I might just mention that those are three sources of anxiety that the pandemic's generated. But to me, the pandemic, it reminds me of, uh, my chaplain supervisor, George, I, I was so green as a chaplain and he pulled me aside. He said, look, when you go into the emergency room, you get that beeper and you have to go down and meet the family. He said, all, all trauma does is it reveals what's already in a family. So if Mm. a family's tight, you're going to watch them be really tight. And if they're at at odds with each other, that's going to be escalated. I feel like that's what this pandemic did, is it just Mm. exposed what's already in us. And so for leaders who are running on empty going into the pandemic, which, by the way, may not be their fault, but if if that's just the case, uh, it probably is at risk of doing them in. And I just want to make sure people... I, I would hate for somebody to hear that and then feel guilty that they were running on empty. I, I just think that's ministry does that. But boy, if they were running on fumes going into it, they may not have much in the tank. 
uh, and may really need to figure out a way. I'm, I'm doing some coaching right now where the elders of this, uh, this pastor have told him, just take a month and they just see he needs a little extra. He's a good man. He's earnest. Um, so I think the pandemic is revealing our condition, but I also think as pastors, because we're paid to be spiritual leaders, we believe we should always be spiritually well. And mm. I think that is a unique source of anxiety for a pastor. Mm. Yeah. And when we ask that question, Steve, regularly, what lies are you tempted to believe? That's one of the key ones yep. that yeah. people will mention. So that makes sense. And that's a gap. And speaking of gap, I mean, we were talking before we pressed record here about uh, your passion that's growing of the gap that we believe about God and what we experience about God. And it reminds me of something that Dallas Willard said. He said, we always live what we believe. We don't always live what we profess we believe. Yeah. And uh, that, and then a follow-up quote by Willard is he said, never believe anything anything bad about God. And that has always stuck with me. But that idea that we always live what we believe, we don't always profess what we believe. But I'm curious, how are you seeing the gap? Talk a little bit about the gap and then talk about how the pandemic may or may not be impacting the gap that we're, that we're feeling or experiencing today. Yeah, I've been fascinated with the gap for years and I'm now doing more formal work on it. Like we believe God loves us, but how often do we actually viscerally experience it. We believe God's with us, but it's hard to see. And then the third gap is um, we thought we would be further along by now. I hear that so much from people. Man, I've been a Christian 30 years. You'd think by now, blank. What I'm noticing, I've been doing more and more work and my wife's been helping me with this because she's a therapist. Um, she just became a therapist a couple of years ago. I'm learning so much from her on this. But I've been doing a lot of work with people on their inner critic, trying to help them learn to listen to the story they tell themselves. And, you know, I wrote about that. But even since the book came out, what I've been doing lately is getting people into groups, having somebody willing to bravely share the story they tell themselves, the inner critic. And then the group writes down the adjectives they're hearing. For example, unrelenting, unforgiving condemning, these kinds of things. And then we talk about, okay, what's true about God? I love what you just said about Willard. Uh, and what I'm coming to the conclusion of is a lot of people experience this gap because they're living by their inner critic, not by God. They're actually uh, elevating their own opinion above what God says. And then they, because we're all sick in the Western church, they think that's humility. Like, I think we have a really twisted version of humility in the church. So we say, well, if I'm down on myself, it means I'm humble. And so, you know, you guys know me, I, I use a lot of playfulness, family systems theories, famous for playfulness and stirring the pot. And I'll say, boy, there's nothing more arrogant than elevating your inner critic above the king of the universe. Like, that's arrogant. Like, for you to think that you are no good is actually extreme arrogance compared to submitting to so what i've had to learn to do in my own life it's it, it was about a five-year journey is what what if i lived as if what god says is truer than what i think and that was hard um for me the gap was i i could eloquently tell others about the love of god i didn't believe it for myself i thought i was yep. a generic human being and 2015 for me was a turning point i'm like well i'm fed up with this i've had enough of this crap and I went on a five-year binge. That's actually where the life-giving list came from, is really studying down to one square of lint chocolate 
and the taste of chocolate on my mouth, really studying when I feel the touch of God in my life. Um, I've got like 86 things on my list now. I keep adding to it. It's been, it's been really fun. I mean, you you did mention, and this is this is just as spiritual and important. But I know we have a connection with fly fishing, and that's yeah. probably number one on the list. But um, where are some of the spaces you've been experiencing God's touch in your life? In you know, just in this really strange season, uh, fly fishing has been one of them. I've gone, I think, three times in the last month. Hmm. Uh, it's not number one. Making love with my wife is, I think, number one. Just. <laughs> To be quite frank, I yeah. think skin on skin with a person that knows everything about you, thats I think it's like a sacramental experience. Um, I, I, one of the things I've enjoyed as I'm coaching is I ask people to give me every week, we, we get our coaching group. We say, okay, what's something you did that's life-giving? And what I've enjoyed is adding things to my list based on what others say. One of, my, one of the pastors I'm coaching, he recently said, he's like, hey, I, I discovered that the very first time I see my kids every morning is life-giving. I was like, that's amazing. So I added that to my list. Um, we have a puppy and he acts like a toddler. So he's a golden retriever. He's always in need of more affection. And yesterday he like just bumped me with his nose like eight times. Like I'd, We'd taken him for a jog already. We've given him food. Like we've done all the things. But he just kept bumping me. He's like, hey come on, let's go. And he'd just jump up on my lap. He's quite big now. And so yeah, your slow-mo videos of him on social yeah, media. Yeah. Are fascinating. That's so. been fun. Yeah. He's seven months old now, I think. So he's almost fully grown, but he has forced me to play and he, he really has for, and, and my kids have forced me cause I'm working at home where my kids are in school and my daughter particularly is using me as her social outlet. She just, needs to chat and so my efficiency is in the tank between my puppy and my daughter and somewhere in that i've discovered that that's just a gift from god um yeah so i think that's where i've discovered it i think that's so helpful steve i i, I feel like one of the things that i really appreciate about both conversation is there's this way that you seem to give permission to pastors um and just as we're landing the plane, is there any other space that you just come into mind where you would want to say, hey, pastors, I give you permission to fill in the blank in this season? Yeah, it's a great question. I, when, I, when I came to Discovery 15 years ago, it was my first time to be a lead pastor. I'd been in ministry 10 years, but I just knew as the lead pastor, I think I was 33 when I came. I, I was younger than most of the people in our church. And I just intuitively knew at that time that I had two options. One option was I could learn and grow in front of my congregation and let everybody in on it. So the whole church would know I'm learning and growing. The other option would be that I could try to fudge my way to act like the guru or the spiritual example. And uh, because I came to Discovery with quite a bit of theological doubt, I was known in Las Vegas at the church where I, as the pastor that would share his doubt from the stage, I'd preach about it. And when I got hired at Discovery, I was very open with the elders and all the search committees about it. So they knew what they were getting with me. And we all made this agreement that I would grow into it. And I discovered somewhere 
that what if I just never grow out of that? Uh, 15 years in, imposter syndrome left, I think, seven years ago, eight maybe. I still largely am living by faith, but 15 years is enough time that I'm comfortable. But I, I think most of the people in my church would still say, we don't think, and that guy doesn't think he's a spiritual example. He's just hungry for Jesus. Like he just shares. So I, I just get up and very openly share my present tense struggles, my present tense sins. Um, I always try to steward them for the church. I'm never interested in like using the church as my therapy, and that's probably a fine line. But I, I just think if a pastor can create a culture where honesty is celebrated, it not only relieves you of all this pressure. I don't have to hide. I can get help. I can tell people I'm getting help. I can't tell you how many times I've just referenced in passing how therapies help me when I'll call another pastor when I don't know what to do. Um, my church knows almost all of my leadership mistakes. I just share them. <laughs> like, here's the latest one. Um, the other the other benefit is it actually attracts the kind of people you want in your church because it attracts the kind of people that are wondering, um, is this a place where I can share my struggles? And, you know, with my, my work right now in this, this thing we're calling the gap, so many congregants feel the gap. But because their pastor never admits that he has a gap, they're never going to bring it up. And so when I started admitting my doubt, it just became a great opportunity for people to share their doubt too. And I think doubt needs oxygen. I think if you keep it in a box, it gets worse. If you bring it out in the open, it, it manages it better. So I, I would just want faith leaders to know that all God needs from you is to be exactly human-sized. You don't actually need to be like Jesus at all. The disciples were nothing like Jesus, and they were all world changers. You can be exactly human-sized and still full of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that means you get to make mistakes. You get to get it wrong. You get to be imperfect. So I think so long as you're chasing after God, I think that's about the only requirement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I guess I would have to say, especially like even as we're recording, there's another famous Christian that's being exposed for a sex scandal. I hope people understand what I mean is that your private behavior is congruent with your public reputation. There are certain sins that don't disqualify you from being a human, but you should just no longer be a leader of a faith community. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason we we fight to stay as a leader is we actually believe that being a leader is better than anything else. And it's not like being a leader is just another part of the body of Christ. And so if you have an addiction, if you have some kind of secret sin that's eating you alive, you should step out of leadership. Not I don't care about disqualification just for your own soul. And so you're not you're not damaging good people. Um, so I, I would say that. So the mistakes I'm talking about are just more well-meaning leadership mistakes, not like things that you should be in jail or, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Steve, thanks again for your time. It is always great to chat with you and blessings to you and yours out there in beautiful state of Colorado. Yeah, great to be with you guys. Doug, I always enjoy talking with our friend Steve Kess. 
Me too. Uh, he just brings such, he, he's so, I feel like he's one of those people who's so present in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I just really enjoy, uh, I mean, first of all, his topic, the leadership anxiety, being the anxiety guy, that's super helpful, especially in this conversation. And I mean, even from the perspective of, uh, you know, you and I have chatted with him probably a grand total of two or three times. And even logging on before we recorded, it just felt like three friends meeting up to chat and just to check in on life and see how things are going. Yeah. And what most people don't know, I think he alluded to it, but, um, you know, he's talking about managing leadership anxiety. There's sometimes we could think like, how does he really do? It's easy to write that when you're sitting in, you know, your basement and typing out your book manuscript, but how are you really when anxiety happens? And I just love the fact that he talked about the fact that today in Denver recording, like the whole city lost internet service. <laughs> and so his day is out the window. And I I know, and Doug, you know this about me, that I would be very anxious about that. And yeah. I just really appreciated uh, that he was willing to say, look, I get time with my family and I went out for coffee with my kids. And and so I just appreciate that he like smokes what he sells, yeah. you know, <laughs> like that he's really willing to do that. Um, and I, you know, off the air, I called him a younger Australian Peter Scazzaro. Mm. Uh, because I, I think in many ways, the whole emotionally healthy spirituality, emotionally healthy leader, emotionally healthy church that Peter Scazzaro has put out, and maybe we need to have Pete actually on the podcast as a guest, that in many ways, um, not that he's regurgitating what Pete is doing has done, but that he's bringing in this idea of that our emotional maturity and our spiritual maturity are very much linked together, that our growth in, in Christ is intimately linked together. So, so grateful for him. He used a phrase that's really stuck with me. He says, human-sized leadership. Yes. I don't know if you heard that or that stuck out to you, Doug. <laughs> well, it was. I was just waiting to talk about that because I, I wrote that down as he was saying, uh, as he used that phrase, it just, man, there's so much grace packed into that that phrase, but there's also a bit of fear, I think, packed into that phrase. Like, what does it really look like to be a human size, you know, to, to, to participate in human size leadership? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's something about that, that is refreshing, especially in this season where a lot of what we as pastors and leaders have been good at, uh, especially in pro- like pro- productivity is mm-hmm. just no longer, th- it's, it, you're just slower. There's, there's really no way around it. Um, yeah. So I don't know for me that, that was kind of a a head explosion. I I felt, uh, I felt, (laughs) I felt like there's a lot there for me to unpack something left within my own soul. Like, well, I I need to sit with that. What does it mean to, to be a human sized leader? Um, just such a great reminder today. How about, I mean, what, why did that stick out for you? Yeah. It stuck out to me because I think, you know, there may even be a book on this title. I don't know, but I feel like there've been like, you know, big pastors conferences. They would have something titled, a talk titled something like God-sized leadership, (laughs) God-sized dreams. And here's Steve coming along saying, no, God needs us to be human-sized leaders. And I just think it takes the pressure off because oftentimes our current Christendom model of church and church leadership says you got to have God-sized vision and a God-sized leader. And what if we're just human size? Mm. And maybe that's, if, if, if it was illegal for us to use the phrase Monday morning pastor, maybe for this podcast, maybe it should be the human size pastor or mm. the human size leader. Uh, so I really like, it. I think that's why it really resonated with me, but, um, but I also appreciated he talked about the gap that what we believe about God and what we experience about God, that, that that's 
for everybody, including pastors, that we experience that gap. And we talked about the gap, you know, on another episode here on the podcast, but that Dallas Willard quote was just running through my mind that we always live what we believe. We just don't always live what we profess that we believe. Mm. And I think that's really important. And I love that he talked about how we let our inner critic, which as a, as a Enneagram one, there's nobody that has a higher inner critic than me. And so that was really important. That's where I, I, my ears perked up because of saying, how do I like quiet the inner critic and trust the God of the universe and his opinion more than mine? So he, uh, he healthily confronted me and challenged me probably without even knowing it, but that inner critic in me is, is very strong yeah. and, uh, and can be healthy sometimes, but most of the time is not. So yeah. I'm really grateful for that. And I look forward to more of his work on that. So, yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah. So let's leave, leave you all with a few resources. Uh, if you have not read Managing Leadership Anxiety, there's a link in the show notes. Please do yourself a favor, pick it do up, it. read it. Do it. Uh, I will guarantee you it will be one of those books that you revisit time and time again. Uh, I, I remember reading it la- uh, last summer. And then I contacted Steve, he got back to me and we had him on the show for the first time. If you want to hear more of a deep dive into leadership anxiety, feel free. Uh, we'll put the link to the first, uh, for the first podcast that we had with Steve. Um, and you'll get to hear all about the life-giving list and everything else that is meter leading. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Meeting. Wow. Managing leadership anxiety. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. We, that, meant, we meant what you knew. Yeah. We meant what I knew what I meant. <laughs> uh, and then just a, a very simple, two really simple questions. And then, um, and then I'm going to let JR kick us out, but what is the story that you are telling yourself about yourself? And the second part is a follow-up question to that is where is Jesus in that story? Mm, mm, that's good. That's good. Well, brothers and sisters, pastors, listeners of the Monday Morning Pastor podcast, as you go into your day, into your week, into the rest of your your month and this season that we're in, despite incredible uncertainty, may we learn to lead and love God in the midst of the ambiguity. And may we remember that what God is doing in us is more important than what he's doing through us. So we may we be the kinds of people where our spiritual maturity grows as we understand our emotional maturity growing as well. May we shorten the gap between what we believe about God and what we experience about God. And may what we experience and believe be aligned together. God bless and bless God.